Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinterklein. The bad white men call him the devil. The Yavapai call him eyes like the sky. All right, Joe Guilford. Welcome. You are an award-winning nominated screenwriting actor, uh, screenwriter and screenwriting professor at NYU. Uh, you've had a screen. Uh, you have a screenwriting book out called "Why Does the Screenwriter Cross the Road and Other Screenwriting Secrets?" We know you're very accomplished. Um, and for listeners, a more thorough introduction of his accomplishments. Uh, see part one. This is the second part of our conversation with Joe. Um, and there's another story that we've learned about um, that's happened. Sort of the plot points of your life. You grew up with famous parents. They were actors and eventually blacklisted actors, which was a very influential part of your life. You started in theater and film very young, and you've stayed in that world for a long time. So you've got 50, 60 years in this thing, um, very far down your path. Um, You became a father during this time, and while you kept writing, there did come a time where you recognized you were not... um, yeah, maybe taking this as seriously or more as focused and um, you actually considered yourself an under earner at the, uh, and you finally started or you, at some point in time you started pulling your finances together, started teaching or teaching more, um, working more focused and eventually got into a healthy romantic relationship. And while you have continued selling screenplays, teaching, uh, even, even in the last couple of years, you've continued to put the pieces together together and really take control of your finances, reduce your anxiety and flourish in a more full and what seems like supported way than you ever have. And we'd like to hear more about that story. Welcome, Joe Guilford. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Another wonderful introduction. You guys do a great job. And it's a pleasure to be here again. And I'm very flattered that mm-hmm. I hadn't just shot my wad on the first show. Which I I, uh, I had been, you know, uh, when you first interviewed me, I came to it more as an artist and a writer and prepared to talk on that. But what was wonderful, and I think what's wonderful about this show, podcast, I call it a show, um, is the idea of uh, sort of um, taking a deep dive into someone's life challenges. Because when I, I'm a sort of a podcast or I'm a radio addict, as it were, I, I listen to interviews nonstop. And I did it for therapeutic kind of reasons. When I first got divorced, I moved into a new apartment near in the same neighborhood as my ex-wife so that I could take care of my son. We had a shared custody. And it was not a... Um, it was not a disastrous divorce. It was a disastrous marriage in a way, but uh, or it became disastrous or, or um, untenable. So I got an apartment and there I was a bachelor again after 13 years of being with uh, my wife. And um, I used to tune into, you know, Terry Gross. Oh, yeah. Fresh air on on NPR, really a master interviewer. She yeah, is she, she is the model. Yeah. And any any if I ever did what you do, I would use her as the model. Very thoughtful, and so I began listening to the show, which aired in my area at around dinner time. So I was alone some nights because I didn't have my son, or I wasn't seeing anybody. Something like, and I would be making dinner. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a bachelor chef, and I uh, would use these interviews to keep me company. And I was dining with some of the great leaders, musicians, artists, yeah. writers, filmmakers, actors of the time, and and so 
it, it's sort of the value of these kinds of conversations is really not to be underestimated, is my point. I think that uh, you can get, and it's, I would listen to these interviews, not simply to understand their work, the people that were talking, but to understand their life. And I think that's really what's important. And as Dan said, I am the child of famous people, which in itself is kind of a, it's, it's a different subset of, of sort of family. You know, when you're a famous kid, a kid of a famous person. Um, and my father was sort of became more famous as I became a teenager so that the conflicts between us became more intense <laughs> as he became more successful mm. and neither begat the other. The conflicts one has with one's parents as a teenager are natural and I think in unavoidable and should not be avoided, I, I think. But his also his fame sort of made me a victim of that. And that people, I thought people would give me things because of that. And I would resent that. Hmm. I would, oh, you're Jack's son. Oh yeah, you'll get this job. Oh yeah, you get this. Which is only a, a little bit true. Being the son of someone, and I went into the family business. My mother was an actress and became a casting director and a producer as well. I went into the family business, and this is not a curse. It does open doors. It does. If you're, you know, if, if your last name is Gable or Monroe or, uh, or uh, Clooney, you know, that will open a door. But the industry is very discriminating, I believe, when it comes to talent. It is believe it or not, or at least what they feel is um, workable talent. So you still have to pay your dues and you still have to prove your worth after you walk in the door. And that's the hard part. And that's where I sort of had, had, had problems was really proving uh, my talent and also growing my talent. You know, you're going to be born with talent. And I think everyone sort of is. Finding it is the journey. Did you have a sense at the beginning whether that talent was going to be in acting or was it more, or did you feel early on that writing was going to, going to be your wheelhouse? I was a natural performer, an actor, class clown, if you will. I wasn't the only one either. And I wasn't the ringleader. Don't accuse me of that. Do you mean in your family <laughs> or within your friend group? No, it's in life, in my in school, in my yeah. social life. But I was part of a crew of funny, smart kids. Uh huh. Where'd you go to? Where did you go to school? Well, I went to New York a, City? a sort of special kind of private school. It wasn't a prep school. It was at that time. It was sort of the alternative school where everybody who was a leftist kind of person went, and that was called, ironically and in no pun intended, Little Red Schoolhouse in Greenwich. <laughs> it was. It's a famous play. It's a famous private school in New York, and it had a high school attached to it. So I attended that school from nursery school to grade twelve, and I actually spent all those years with a core group of about fourteen kids who started with me in nursery and there was people coming in and out. We had a graduating class of only 35 kids and it still survives. Uh, it's a very successful school right now. But at that time, while it wasn't on the fringe, it was part of a sort of subset of alternative high schools that uh, uh, brought about what was then called progressive education, hmm. which was allowing, simply allowing a child 
to flourish. I think Montessori and, and, and Waldorf are the equivalents now, but slightly more formal and more, um, I guess, more um, uh, dogmatic in their way. Little Red Schoolhouse allowed you to enjoy learning. That was, a, you know, what a concept. And uh, also, it was very physically active kind of place. We had music class, was filled with dance, was filled with banging on things, you know, that kind of stuff when we were little. So I was in that kind of rarefied atmosphere. And these were also children of other artists, performers, and progressive thinkers and people like that. So there was that sort of rarefied atmosphere. And then also the rarefied world of uh, show business, theater, musicals, film, uh, the, that, you know, the world that my father was in. Now, um, as I think I told you in the last show, my parents were progressive thinkers. Obviously, that's you know part of my legacy. And they were blacklisted during the McCarthy era. And that led to my father not being able to work in film or television for almost a decade, about eight years. Wow. Same with my mother. So uh, film, radio, uh, radio and television, actually. Radio was still something you could work in as a, even an actor. But he was lucky enough as a character actor to be able to work steadily on Broadway. It wasn't the same money, of course, but he really went from show to show in the 50s and was in some pretty famous shows. He was in the original Diary of Anne Frank on Broadway in the mid-50s, another Patty Chayefsky play called Tenth Man, and also musicals like A Funny Thing Happened the Way to the Forum with Zero Mostel and Cabaret, both of which he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Tony's. Uh, did not win, but, you know. Now, my father's story isn't just show business. He's someone who came from uh, terrible poverty. His mother was a single Jewish woman, brought him and his two brothers up in Williamsburg on her own. She was a part-time midwife. She ran a lunch counter. She was a bootlegger, which is absolutely true. And she did that part-time all to patch things together, which I think is what my parents, my, my mother's parents were career uh, garment workers. But my father's mother was this woman who just patched things together. And you can only imagine what it was like to be a single woman raising three boys in Brooklyn in what was not even pre-war. It was the 1930s, 1920s. My father was born in 1908. So when he had me, his first child, he was 44, which at that time was quite a bit older than you should be to have your first kid. So in that, there was also that legacy as well, which is that in our family, you worked. In our family, you tried to do something and patch things together. And bringing this whole thing back to my journey, the journey has been a kind of patchwork. There is not that steady target thing that I, I didn't really acquire, I would say, until recently, but that means about 20 years ago. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Because I, I, I'm a little surprised to hear that because um, unlike a lot of people, uh, I don't know, I guess I haven't met too many people who have 50 years in a field. Um, so it seems like you have kind of been driving towards a, a goal. Are you talking about um, what was being patchworked together? Is this kind of this other thing that we're talking about, which is like your maturity as a human or what do you mean? Well, I was not one. Of, I, I had thought I was going to be a an actor. That sort of oh, I see. Left, left me when I was a teenager, and I started making little films on my own. 
with my friends. And then I was going to be a film director. And that was from the age of 14 till I was about, I guess, about 23, until I was about 30. But in that career, I kind of didn't really, I sort of took whatever pathway led to a paycheck. I see, I see. And not in a mercenary way, in a necessary way. It was practical. I was not directing feature films. I was not in a point where I was toting around scripts or I was out in Hollywood where some of my contemporaries went out and sort of still had Roger Corman doing stuff for young directors and all that. And they clicked and they scored. I tried and I used my NYU student short starring my father, which got attention for that, but it wasn't good enough. It just wasn't good enough. It was, was that not- hard on you when you were young and you, I mean, now yeah. it sounds like you could say that with some clarity, but at the time, do you feel like it? they owed you something or you had a, a kind of, um, you, you just felt like maybe you deserved to be in there? I, I felt that, yes. I felt yeah. that a certain gravity would take over that a natural kind of gravity that I would fall into this thing. Yeah. And I think that is the change that has taken me over in the last few decades, which I think is also part of maturity. Yeah. If you really know where you're headed, you'll get there. And I thought I did, but I didn't really know where I was headed. Mm. I hadn't really made the strong enough choice. Everyone talks about love what you do. And that would be great. But also, you can love what you're good at. And I didn't quite know I wasn't as good at one thing that I thought I was as I actually was better at another. Hmm. And it took me a while to say, wait a second, what about this other thing? Which was writing? Taking myself seriously as a writer because, I don't know, I thought writers were different types of people. (laughs) That was really it. I didn't think I was the writer type. But this is the kind of... um, it's just the kind of thinking that sort of takes you over when you're not yeah. clear on your goals. Now, listen, not everybody, my son, for instance, is sort of drifting about. He doesn't, he didn't have the good fortune. I at least knew something, even if it was yeah. not the thing. At least I was yeah. really certain that I loved filmmaking and that I was going to pursue that. And yeah. I was really certain about that from the age of 14, 15. Mm. But that changed. That really changed. And I was not prepared for the change. And I went for it actually in the same way as I was pursuing a paycheck. My first professional writing gig came to me uh, on a show called The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. It was one of the first, I would say, more intellectual comedies of the early cable years. It was on arts and entertainment. At the time, Eric Overmeyer, who ended up on The Wire, and he now does Bosch, was the young showrunner, a former, a playwright, too, someone I knew. And he knew me and my wife. My wife was a prominent and very smart cabaret singer, believe it or not. And she had made quite a splash, and we were doing stuff together. And so he hired us. He hired us to do an episode, and we got paid good money for it. But he had a problem with the major producer of the show, and he was fired. And all the scripts that he had hired all his friends to do, me and a you know comedian, Louis Black, he was one of them yeah. too. And he threw all those scripts out, so the scripts never got to the air. They never got on the air. Interesting. But I sort of said, gee, I've been given some kind of professional imprimatur here you know this is an endorsement by somebody 
prominent, and then began this whole other journey to really sort of prove to myself that I was a writer. And then you do, excuse me, you do have to prove it to everyone else ultimately. (laughs) See, TV writing, is that where you started or was it feature-length film? Well, I thought I was going to write features. Let's, Let's go back. Ron, we'll go uh-huh. back. This, this is the dissolve of the smoke and the ripples of the water. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't really know what writing was, even though I thought I could do it. Hmm. Now I do. I teach it. My teaching actually was really instrumental in my discovering what it was. And when I say what it was, is the same way you do the podcast. I'm sure. Were you a master of audio and engineering and Mac tools when you decided to do this? Far from it. Still far from it. So you stuck your finger in and just saw what you were going to find. Yeah. And that's sort of what I did with writing. Thank God I had what was then called the West Bank Downstairs Theater Bar, which was actually um, run by Lewis Black, Rand Forster, Rusty McGee. Um, who sadly passed away many years ago, but they ran a place where you could do two one-act plays a night. It was an 8.30 show and a 10 o'clock show. And then at midnight on Saturdays, they'd have what they call the midnight free show. Lewis would host about seven comics, and you'd be there till three in the morning listening to great comedian. Hmm. Really good one. Anyway, that was the atmosphere there, and they would let me do whatever I wanted. They let me be a director down there, uh, I worked with Lewis. I worked with actors like uh, John Bowman, who's now Lewis's opening act, and a bunch of other people. And um, I sort of had, it became a place where I could easily do my writing. Mm. In other words, I came to Rand, who was yeah. the I'd say, can I do this? I have this Steve. My friend Steve is lined up as an actor. Yes. That was not the way it was at New York Theater. New York theater was as difficult to penetrate as a new writer as Hollywood would be for a new screenwriter, Mm. someone with no reputation at all. But this was an open door. So I was really lucky to be part of this. And seeing your work performed, we talked about this last time. You're writing for performance, but getting your work on its feet tomorrow, there's nothing more thrilling than that. And that's when, that's when the bug hit me. I was in my, my mid-30s by then. Wow. And um, uh, that's where I really said, oh, oh, I, I can do this. Now I get it. Now I can, I can see why I can do this better than that other thing. Hmm. It was odd. Do you think before when you didn't have the um, – I know you already answered this, but I'm going to ask you again because because I, I wasn't satisfied with your answer. <laughs> and that was <laughs> when I, you were – both yeah. my right – Ah. Under the Fifth and a Half Amendment. That's when... a very special amendment for interviews. <laughs> I will not repeat my answer. <laughs> well, when I asked you about uh, the, you know, you go, you went in, and you were at first interested in acting, and then you you thought writing was done by a certain kind of people. Was there a kind of um, lack of confidence in that as well? Because I think as a as a a writer for myself. <clears throat> Or as a as my you know myself as a writer, I'm sorry. I I had these short little pieces of fiction that I'd put out, and I'd have professors that would give me accolades. My brain just immediately went to say, I might as well try to go be a rock star. Like that's that was the leap that I thought I can't even pursue that because I might as well just strap a guitar on my you know on myself and try to get a record deal. Like that's what it seemed like. 
even though I had an insane amount of love and affection for the process, for the results when I finished it, all of those things. And so I didn't take the, the, that seriously. So my lack of confidence came from just thinking that success as a writer was just, you know, I might as well try to be an astronaut. How about for you? I mean, you mentioned that. You see, I'm, 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 I, any, any pat on the back at all to me meant that I could be a master of that Mm. universe. (laughs) And that was my mistake. Yeah. Because I really, you do need, it's not like you're taking a consensus, but you do need to listen to everybody. Yeah. And you do need to understand who's telling you this. And you need to then construct your own kind of network of, sort of trustworthy uh, alliances and critics and people who mentor you. And it's, it's, that's one of the ways you're navigating and patching it together. I sort of, people came to me, they loved my short film, but those were my parents' friends. Actually, they were in the business too. And when I went to show them my short film when I was just out of uh, college, uh, people went, yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks. Goodbye. And a whole other thing began to take shape. And I t- continued to try to prove myself at that. I directed theater with, with some small success. But you know, it's funny. I came in, as I say, I came into theater directing from the back door because I'd really been trained as a filmmaker, although I knew theater intuitively from my background. But I came into writing from the basement door. Mm. And it was. What do you mean by that? I had no formal training as a writer, except for some creative fiction writing I took in college, except for another nonfiction writing class I took with the wonderful book writer named James Atlas, who just passed away like last year, two years ago. And I took this, I knew I needed to train. And that's really valuable. You know, you, you do, when you, when you see something you want to do, okay, go yeah. take a guitar lesson. Go see if you can work the controls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, there are people who will never be able to learn to drive an automobile. There are, you know, uh, they all live in New York. No, it's, <laughs> it's true. We have so much public transportation. There's no way you need to learn to drive. Yeah. But it is a lot like mm-hmm. driving. It's a very practical thing. And you mm-hmm. just need to learn how to work the controls. And that takes some humility. Yeah. Now, I'm, 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 that's very interesting, Ron, that you refused to recognize the fact that someone said, good job. <laughs> someone said, do this. And you yeah. went, I don't know if I can be, if I can't be Philip Roth, what's the point? Now that is where you can put your goals out of reach. Yeah. And that is, you're getting into a, a different kind of pathology there. And it is. Being an artist is, is a, a construct of pathology. It's a, I, it's a positive pathology. Yeah. But it is a construct of a personal sort of path and that's pathology interesting i had a similar experience where i i met a um a storyteller who had a lot of success in new york writing uh soap operas and then uh some like evening time dramas uh and then he went on to create a very popular tv adventure show in the 80s um and i met him through some mutual friends and i ended up doing a little bit of work for him and um some macgyver guy yeah 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 lee's lotoff you know this guy you ever heard of him oh lee's lotoff i know the name yeah Yeah. i don't know yeah yeah. that's a big name yeah so he 
I don't know how this happened to me, but the they, they had a small production crew that were doing documercials. Mm-hmm. And and I got hired because I knew one of the actually uh, a friend of mine went to NYU, went to NYU film school. He would have graduated 2003, so 2004, something like that. And, and they've had him as a student. Yeah. And um and he was this kid, this guy was making, you know, lots of money filming uh music videos and he hated it like he hated what he was doing and uh and he was trying to find meaning in his work and so he's doing these documentaries for for uh nonprofits and suddenly I'm in there I don't know how I got there but I'm in there and Lee asked me one night as they threw me a birthday party just out, I don't know why but it was happened to be my my birthday they threw me a birthday party and Lee goes tell me about your father and it just so happened that my father had passed away um maybe 18 months beforehand maybe two years and it was uh it was a comedy of errors it was a bumbling uh adventure every you know every step of the way that just continued to get worse and worse Uh, your dad's life you mean my dad's funeral from the moment he died until i put him in the ground oh my gosh i think i heard this story and isn't uh, this a great story (laughs) yeah i mean i i mean Sounds like I'm 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 waiting to hear. Uh, Well, I mean the (laughs) you might need to tell that story, Ron. Those hard stories are those are always good stories. It's been a long. I'll 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 say this: the beginning is I'm I'm living as a poor student in Orange County, California, in a very wealthy neighborhood with my with my wife at the time in her parents' house. We were in her childhood bedroom because we couldn't afford to live in orange county and i was managing a rock climbing gym and making you know eleven dollars an hour twelve dollars an hour something like that and i there's a loud banging on the door at two in the morning and i look outside and it's a a california uh state trooper and i thought this has got to be something going on with our climbing gym that is there's an intruder, there's something, and I'm the guy they got to call. And he goes, Ron Cecil, I go, yes. He goes, here, call this number. I look at it, and I and I call this number, and there's this woman sobbing on the other line, and she's sobbing with a southern accent, if you can imagine that. And and I'm like, why do I know this voice? I, you know, where is this? And she starts telling me, he's gone. I'm sorry, baby, he's gone. And I go, oh, this is my stepmom that I've only met once. My dad was married eight times before he died. And uh, and uh, she goes, your daddy's best friend will call you shortly to give you the arrangements. I go, my dad doesn't have a best friend. I don't like, what, who is she talking about? And then the phone rings and it says Richard Nixon on it, on the caller ID. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And I pick up the phone. He says, my name's Richard Nixon. I'm your daddy's best friend. And I'm like, I, like, what the is hell is going on here? Do you still dreaming? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he goes, I'm, I'm a Mason with your daddy. And, uh, and we're going to take care of your dad's funeral. I'm like, no, sir, that's not what's supposed to happen. My dad knew he was probably going to die. And he asked me to, to, to make the, his, his arrangements for his funeral and speak at his funeral. I'm a, I'm a trained pastor. This is what it's going to be. This is where his dying wish. He goes, no, sir, it's not we're going to take this over. And it began this battle between me and this like funny group of old men at this Masonic lodge in the middle of nowhere, Texas. 
Was it B. Richard Nixon or A. Richard Nixon? It was A. Richard Nixon. <laughs> Amazing. But he was as crooked and weird as the Richard Nixon. <laughs> Amazing. And um, uh, one of the Masons owned a funeral home that was also a Coca-Cola museum. And and you walk into this funeral home and there's Coca-Cola memorabilia. He's like, please, you know, come to the viewing of the body. It's your... sounding almost like George Saunders wrote it. And he's like, help yourself to Coca-Cola product while you're here. And uh, then I, you know, I meet I meet my stepmother and my half brother or my stepbrother who I'd never met. And it just continues to get weird. It culminates in my dad being lowered into a grave with fire ants coming out walking into the audience biting people as it's going on uh so i'm telling you know i'm telling uh lee this and he's like man that'd be a great screenplay and i go you know i've been thinking about that he goes we'll write it and we'll we'll talk about it and and so i wrote it and it took me a while i got it done and i sent it over to him and he's like uh yeah man these are caricatures of 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 characters you know you're you're a little over on some of this stuff and try it again and my brain unfortunately didn't real i was thinking if i could hit this home run the first time <sighs> i'll have done it and that's you've never it. and you've never written a screenplay before you never never right there is the there is a pathology to expectations as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think expectations as a category needs to be put in that book that shrinks use. Expectations should be a condition of some kind of pathology. That's a recognizable really pathology. Because we all distort it. And I am very much a kindred spirit to that. Yeah. That same thing. And I thought some things too on my problem was i didn't at least you finished the screenplay right you did a hundred yeah. pages you said yeah. really great i never got that far so i thought i could show people fragments and have them go this is going to be a great screenplay here's some money go yeah. finish it <laughs> and that became a kind of satiric a self-satirizing part of me later on when i started writing my own character into my uh plays called mickey um, and Mickey was the name of my father's character in uh, in in Thinks as well, my play. But anyway, yes, I hear you, Ron. Yeah. And it's like all you got to do is go rewrite. Well, I, I you know years later, I heard I can't remember where it was, but the, the average screenplay goes through eleven drafts before it, ends. and that's average, meaning that most yeah. of the really good ones go through more. And if you're not done. On the on the you you're not done on the twentieth draft, and you're not done until it goes in front of the cameras. Yeah, you're not done until a director starts picking apart, and you're not done until George Clooney starts looking at it on the set yeah. and going, yeah. "I got to change this line." Mm, mm. James Franco or Mark Ruffalo or Kate sure. Blanchett. Can we just make that this because it's easy because you're writing for performance, so that's. Yeah. The last person to handle it will be an actor. Hmm. And and you will get now some actors are very disciplined and refuse to make any changes to the writing. So there's that too. Yeah. But you fell into that thing where you didn't know how much work was involved. Well, people what? I think were trying to tell me, and I was I I was um gleefully willfully being unaware like i was deciding that somehow i was the exception to the rule but you didn't feel you were resentful of them you just 
or were you? Were you saying I wasn't hey, resentful of them? They say it is. Was that your attitude? Yeah, I, I I didn't think they were resentful. It's almost like the guy who's going to the the bodega and buying a lottery ticket, and he's he's sure he's going to win. He has a complete <laughs> confidence that Powerball is in his favor that day. That's kind of the like the silliness that I felt around writing that in my in my twenties. Well, I hear two things going on. First yeah. of all, you didn't know what you were doing, and therefore you didn't know how to continue. Yeah. When you know what you're doing, you know how to continue. You know what the next step is. Not knowing what the next step is, is the thing that will mm. hurt you and really stop you. That's interesting you say that. Not that, understanding the next step in anything. Yeah. And that includes relationships. That's right. That's right. There's a, there's a phrase I stole from uh, a group of anonymous folks I've hung out with over the years. Uh, that is, all we got to know is the next right step. And that's what was my problem back then. And I think happens to a lot of us. And if we don't know the next right step, then it's, we just don't do anything. I think you have to also be prepared to take the next wrong step. Yeah. That's like do. what you said last because time you where you said. You can't, you know, if, you, if you had proper training, and I try to tell my students, it's a cliche, writing is just rewriting. Mm. And they don't really understand that. They do think they're going to hit you know, that home run, as you said, right at the first, at the first pitch. Yeah. On the first pitch, not just the first, the third, the third swing, you know? Yeah. So, what's important. What's, oh, sorry, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. What, what I think is uh, important in the, in the, I'm good keep th listening to all this and keep thinking over and over about when someone's trying to put their life together, I feel like they run into the same exact thing. They're like, okay, I'm aware of what I need to do do differently and I'm going to do it. And then you start to do it. And it's like, it's like a really bad screenplay, you know um, it's a bad first effort. And yeah. I think that yeah. probably the thing that I most believe in life and I, a proponent of is is that is that like writing a, a complex piece of art like a screenplay um or a book it's gonna it's might be a wreck at first but to keep going and 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 that there's a lot of different aspects to it and maybe you can get better at one aspect and maybe everything else sucks for like a long time but if you do this one little thing better and then you approach it again then the whole thing will be a little better and then if you can organize your life to a point where you can have the privilege of going through that process without having to like you know get a job that is just so stressful and takes you out um or or, or you the things that you're not doing well enough or the ways you don't know yourself lead to a relationship that is just overwhelmingly um anxiety ridden and promoting you know those are the real parts that like uh inspire compassion i don't know what to do with that i'm not speaking to those situations but when you do get to a place where you can start to put some pieces together i feel like do that for 10 years you know and that's kind of what we were talking about a little earlier today, Joe, about is it, is it sounds like you, you somehow did that with your life on a, on a whole. And I don't want to get away from this delightful screenwriting um, conversation, but I just paralleling it too to creating a life where you can now, it sounds like you're set up for decades, you know, to be able to flourish and relax and, and work hard. You know, those things are kind of opposite, but they're not. And 
I hear you, Ron, on the screenplay. And I actually wanted to ask you, Ron, to wrap it back around. Is it meaningful that we're talking to Joe about this? Because you still have that screenplay holstered, don't you? I do have the screenplay <laughs> holstered. I don't know. It, meaningful, I, I would say intimidating. And also, you know, when you look at, when I look at my old writing, I just think, well, like, it's like, it's, you know, I have two kids and they go, God, you know, dad, look at this great painting I did. And we put it up on the refrigerator and I pat them on the head and I said, that's great. And, and, you know, the camera pans to it and it's just like a smudge of paint. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel about that screenplay. So I don't feel entirely like it's precious anymore. I did for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm realizing it needs, you know, it doesn't need a new coat of paint. It needs to be torn down to the, to the studs and, and reworked probably in ways that I can't even imagine. So yeah, thank you. And it is, it is meaningful. And I'm, but here, I'm really glad you brought it back to life, Daniel, because in a way, what I want to do is kind of compare and contrast my life to Joe's life in the sense that I, I had, I thought I had one chance. I didn't, I thought I did. And when I failed in that one chance, I just gave up. I walked away from that. And I, and I didn't quite burn bridges, but I didn't keep up with Lee. I, I could have, there's, there, there's a parallel universe where I could have decided, look, I enjoyed this so much that I'm going to throw myself into the right writing community. I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to go take classes. I'm going to go get an MFA, whatever it is, any of the number of ways that I could continue to write. But because I wasn't the, you know, the, the miracle uh, baseball hitter that I thought I should have been, I decided to take the safe route, which was business. And, and quite frankly, I spent more than a decade being a very resentful business person with this thing in the back of my mind of, of like, I'm not really paying attention to the part of me that I really want to pay attention to, which is writing. And it wasn't until about two years ago where I thought I have to feed this thing in my soul no matter what the success level is, even if it means I'll never be successful at it, even if it means that maybe there might be success, but it might come five, 10, 20 years down the line. None of those matter. This is really a matter of feeding my soul now and honoring my soul now and loving myself in a way that I never have before. And that's, that's a hard lesson. And it's like, I wish I could like open young people's heads up and go, look, you've got, you've got a certain amount of time that's not guaranteed. It's absolutely not guaranteed. So why waste your breath on shit that you're going to be resentful? You know, you're going to be resentful about it. You, you can tell, <laughs> like, you know, even filling out the application for this job or, or during the interview, you know, already. So why even go into it? Well, I can only yeah. say that having done that. Yeah. Well, listen, um, you have to decide why you're doing it and what you want out of it. If you're going to say, okay, I want to be a screenwriter that I just want to write screenplays and show them to my writing group. And that's it. Or have readings. Or that's, or just not. Or just put them in a drawer and just do it. Just like you, uh, some people like to get out a book and do sketches and they're awfully good at it. Yeah. And I know, Dan, you came to your art. It looked to me like another choice. I have no idea whether you had done it before. But it looks like you just took a natural route to something that was, and whether you show or sell or not may not matter to you. You got to decide what it is you're going to make and how much it matters to you what you're going to do with it. Now, it matters to me now that I get produced as a playwright. It matters to me that I get produced as a writer of any kind, screenwriter, TV, and that's really hard. 
but I'm not going to think that I'm a bad writer if I don't get produced. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. The difference is, am I going to get up at bat and hit the first pitch out of the park and then give up if it's, you know, a foul ball or it's a fly out? No. You do have to get back to it. You absolutely get back to it. You know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. That's a, a, a Rogers and Hart tune, written by with the lyrics by Larry Hart, great lyricist. And you've got, and you, you've got, but you've also got to decide why you're doing it. Like my mm-hmm. friend Ed sat across from me at lunch last year. And he said, "Joe, you've just got to decide why you're writing." Because I had stopped. Mm-hmm. I had stopped for a couple of reasons. I had stopped because I could. I had stopped because I just completed this screenplay for Finks, which I had made into something I wasn't expecting to make it into. And I felt very successful at simply having done that, showing it to a couple of trusted people, getting the reflection of my, you know, good, good accomplishment, and then just hoping for the best. That's the last part. And that's, that's where you have to get started on the next project. Because there is a gamble involved, and your lottery analogy is perfect, because this is the way I tell my students it is to be pretty much any kind of writer, especially a screenwriter. You're waiting on this long line with a whole bunch of other people. It's like a Dr. Seuss line. It's over Hill and Dale, you know, this string of people (laughs) going into the horizon. And you do move up, but it's awfully slow. And you are still working, and you're still doing your stuff. And so you finally, finally, finally get to the head of the line. And there's a guy at a table with a ledger, and he checks off your name, and he gives you a voucher to play roulette. That's what being a screenwriter is. Yeah. John August, great screenwriter, um, Big Fish, and those great screenplays he wrote oh, yeah. Tim Burton. He says it's like, as a writer, you're... You're you're chipping away at this really thick stone wall forever, and you're hammering away at it, hammering with this little stupid lame hammer called your talent, right? And you hammer away, chip away, and you finally get through to the other side, and there's another wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I, that's the way you have to. I, I think it's more realistic to look at it that way for me, yeah. so that I don't give up when I hit that other wall that I just know I'm just going to have to chip through that and that the work itself is its own reward. I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Dan, that's, that's something it Daniel and be, I or else you're talk about frequently. If, if you not, aren't in love with the process, if you aren't in love with the, the work, you're going to burn out. It's going to, it's going to burn you up pretty fast. And, and just, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I yeah. don't, I want to give, permission for you to not love it <clears throat> yeah i was gonna work, say i remember you, you talking about love, yeah. you don't have to love work you don't you just have to do it you mm. can love it or an aspect of it i just want to say yeah if loving it is part of your process then love it to death mm. for me working it is part of what i love mm. rather than just loving the process working stuff out and getting to the end of the day with a finished scene or a first draft of something, then it's good. It's time to get out the wine. And, you know, it's, yeah. if you get, yeah. it, that's the reward is completion. But that's I'm what not, I was going to say. Like, for me, see, I get scared when people say you got to love it because I don't. Well, there's a, there, uh, <laughs> go ahead, Daniel. I got something to say after that. Go ahead, Daniel. <laughs> I was just going to say like, 
all of those things I think very much are true. You know, some people love it. Some people don't. I've actually been in both camps personally. And, um, and I, I, I understand that. Um, and then everything you were talking about before that, Joe is also obviously, you know, some people skip the line, you know, that can happen, but, but I think the expectation that if you can set your life up to a, to a point where you can wait in line for a long, long time and be okay, then, then that's the goal. Uh, then that's, that's more sustainable because I think maybe what happens is when we pursue something, when we're young, we kind of have that one, like get out of jail free card through our like twenties, mm. maybe twenties, thirties. I don't know. But as time goes on, as I've experienced it, I, the, I need to be supported in all of these different ways that I didn't need to be supported back then. Like in my twenties, um, I, I didn't need to like take care of my body very well. I didn't need to eat the right things. I could drink a lot more than I maybe could or should have. Um, I didn't have to have my finances together as much. I didn't have to have my relationships. I could be in conflict with my family, but I could still kind of do the thing that would get me to where I wanted to go ambitiously or professionally. And now it's different. And I need to have all of this. I need to have like a team of people and some infrastructure around that supports all this process that supports the waiting in line, that this supports the days that I don't enjoy it at all. And if I don't have that stuff, the, you know, things start to go pear shaped. I lose my balance and, you know, split my differential and tip the, tip the <laughs> fuck over. It's one of my favorite lines from Wolf of Wall Street. Um, so I, I just think it's important to recognize that and how people have put the, the pieces together. It's what I was kind of um, talking about with you earlier today, you know, just putting that infrastructure together so you can go the long haul. That, that's pretty much what I wanted to say, Ron. I agree. I think that writers um, um, within the, just the, the, their character and, and the phrase that I love best is Flaubert who said, you must be quiet and ordinary in your life in order to be violent and original in your work. And that was, for me, getting to an ordinary life is what you're talking about, Dan. Nice. And that really does, uh, you know, the kind of thinking and work you need to do as any kind of artist needs to be within the serenity of something. You need to be within a serenity. You know, the, the program preaches this. I'm, I'm not in it, but I know a lot about it because... It's around us. It's I believe it's I believe it's the new religion. I do. Yeah. And I know sometimes it revol- involves religion and sometimes it doesn't. But regardless, it's a path to healing and serenity. And I think you just need to do that. I need to. Now, some of our greatest geniuses were not did not have the most balanced inner right. lives. You know, and you look right. at the F. Scott Fitzgerald's, Hemingway's, Picasso's of our time. Um, but I think they got the most attention. Um, the some of the greatest screenwriters who, like right now, Walter Bernstein, who wrote The Front and a bunch of other scripts and was also blacklisted in the 50s, is turning 100. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Ogden Stewart was a great screenwriter, also one of the blacklisted screenwriters. He lived in his 90s. So I'm thinking that that serenity gives yeah. you the time. Because if you're not burning the candle at both ends, you do have time. Mm-hmm. You have time to do it over. You have time to try something else. You have time to give yourself, and you're not propelled by anxiety anymore. You may be propelled by ambition. You may be propelled by a fantasy. It's an expectation. Chagall, you know the painter Chagall? I want to be up there saying, I want to thank 
Dan and Ron for this, <laughs> you know, and, and you want to be right. up there. That's okay, too, because a fantasy can fuel very real work. And so whatever it is you choose to do it, do it for that reason. But be honest, we, I think we all will agree it's not easy. It's really not easy. One of the things that kept coming to my mind, and this is uh, unfortunately, uh, hopefully not too worn out of a metaphor for Daniel because he's heard me mention stuff like this over and over. <laughs> but I always come back to rock climbing because that's what I know. And there's a there's some writer came up with this idea a few years ago of type one, type two, and type three fun. <laughs> and and type one fun is is where you're experiencing something in the moment. And in the moment, it's fun. Like you're glad you have done it. So that would be, you know, playing ball and it's in your, in your, you know, sinking shots and it's happening as a climber, it's climbing, your body feels good. You're not afraid it's going on. Type two fun is where you're doing the activity and, and it might be a little strenuous. It might be a little difficult. It might be a little hard, but at the end, you're like, that was pretty fun. There's a thrill to it. Type three fun is when at no point during any of the activity is it fun at all. In fact, you really wish you weren't doing it. And <laughs> you're swearing off that you'll ever do it again. And at the end of it, even after you've said, I'm fucking never going back up that mountain again, you th- type three fun is going, I'm going to start planning my next trip. And, and I think that that mirrors this kind of work where sometimes you're flowing. Like I, Daniel, and I talk about this sometimes we're, we're writing and I'm like almost crying at the things I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> laughing at it. And I go back and look at it like that's garbage. And then there's other times where I'm, I, I go through the wall and I hit the next wall. And I'm like, God, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen with this. And someone's like, that's actually really good. Like, the last kidding? thing you turned in for the writing group was like that. Remember you were like, this is going to be trash. And then you had all three of us just like, we didn't have a lot negative to say, you know, it was just really fun and interesting and surprising because uh, we're all getting to know each other to see someone like you, you, you consider yourself the beginner in our writing group. And yet you're like flexing these muscles that, you know, or ex- exhibiting abilities that others of us in the writing group are like, man, that's, I wish I could do that, you know? And, and that was something you, I remember you saying you thought it was, um, yeah, who knows? I don't know. It's not that great. Whatever. Yeah. Go figure, you know? But yeah. I wanted to, yeah, go yeah, ahead. God. I just wanted to, before, please hold that thought, Joe. Eckhart Tolle is like, he's a spiritual type of guy. And he says an, another thing, wrote a great book called A New Earth. He he says the same thing you're saying in, in a slightly different way. I thought it might be valuable. Hmm. If you're doing something and you're not, experiencing joy that would be type one fun yeah um enthusiasm type two fun right or acceptance you know mm-hmm. type three fun yeah then you should maybe stop doing it you know mm-hmm. and i think that that's pretty valuable and i think that joe's that's what joe's saying is like he's accepted you know his writing maybe he's enthusiastic a lesser to extent and then rarely but sometimes maybe it's joyful mm-hmm. um and then maybe you Ron, you've, your, your equation of writing, you know, your emotional experience of it is like maybe the, the opposite of that, mm-hmm. but you know, at least everything is in those three boxes, you know, mm-hmm. those three sort of aspects. That's all I wanted yeah. to say about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, that's wow, a great that's book. Really I think if anyone's valuable. not read that, they should read that book. 
it's a, I, I had uh, I was a big fan of, of therapy. I, I started therapy when I was a teenager because I was not doing well in school. I was taking drugs and ripping and running and having a great time. But, uh, you know, I was flunking out of high school. And my parents sent me to a really cool shrink who I ended up staying with for well into my late 20s, early 30s, on and off. After I got married and da-da-da. Um, and... Um, then after there was a point where I was again in crisis during my divorce and I went to a woman who called herself a metaphysician. Her name was Judy and I've lost track of her and I think she passed away. But in those years, I spent four years with her and she was basically a healer kind of person. And it was a $35 a one-on-one session. And then she'd give me a foot massage at the end. But she was also, she was also a, a registered reflexologist, and she had run a shop, too. Anyway, she showed me a lot. And the one thing, a lot of things she showed me are, first of all, M-O-N-E-Y stands for My Own Natural Energy Yield. Huh. My Own Natural Energy Yield. You know, I'm not yeah. sounding like one of those psychic preachers now, yeah. but... It really said, wait a second, if I put in enough energy and guide myself through this thing, yes, I will, because money was this issue for me. And the other thing was she felt there were four parts to us, four kind of slots in our lives that have to be kept in balance. And those four slots were work, love with your partner, love, and then the other is love and working with your family and friends. And then the fourth part is you. Giving yourself part of that 25% balance. Yeah. And you got all four things working at once, you'll feel okay. So people who work too hard and can't give an even amount of time to the other three will feel a life out of balance. People who are too involved in their love life and not enough in their work, which was my problem, will feel their life out of balance. Mm. And so if you want to work on that level, too, just to sort of keep track of yourself, you know, it yeah. keeps there is a balance you need. You have to give yourself to all those things in order for all of them to succeed. Joe, Not do you think that you have or, a part? Are you do, would you say that you have a that? balance achieved right now we come to it it's not you know it's not easy to follow these kinds of things even though they sound good <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I think we can all agree on that to, you know it's hard <laughs> to humble yourself to the task of life without saying i know this already yeah i'm fine everyone says they're fine everyone says my script is fine <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it <laughs> or my going. script sucks, and you're going to hate it. You know, we, we can't get into a thing where, yeah, I wrote something. Tell me what you think, and I'll make it better. What happened to that? <laughs> That's where I'm trying to be My in everything. are always panicked. You know, there comes a point where we're developing work, and in one class, we do two short scripts per semester. It's 14 weeks. So there's always this sort of climax in seven weeks of presenting the final script, even though we've seen the pitch, we've seen the beat sheet, we've seen, but all have come under class criticism and comments and all that. So by this time, they're presenting their script. This idea has been trod on and shared and announced and revealed for seven weeks. And there's no thrill to it at all. But then you put it up on the screen, 
We used to print it out and hand it out. We put it up on the screen. Each person gets assigned a role and we read it out loud. And boy, is it always good? It's always good. And this, I always ask the students, anything you want to tell us? Well, this sucks and this sucks and this sucks. I said, is there anything you like about it? Not really. (laughs) Then then we read it. Now, most of that's just a mental sort of exhaustion. Yeah. The, uh, the strain of familiarity, because any project you embark on as an artist or a writer, you know, you're not writing a screenplay a week. You can't. Not of any quality, you know. Um, you, you need to spend anywhere between what? You know, three months is the Writers Guild. 14 weeks is like the Writers Guild minimum for a first draft. All right. Mm-hmm. So you're spending a minimum of three months to, let's say, two years on this damn thing. And by the end of you going, I don't even remember whether it was any good anymore. But that's where revealing this to a circle of other colleagues, and I mean just people who I show my script, my my girlfriend, Kathy. She's my trusted demographic. She's not in show business per se. She's not an experienced writer, really, although she reads and she watches a lot of TV and movies with me. But when she looks at something, she'll be totally honest with me because she doesn't know the tricks. (laughs) And she doesn't know the flourishes. And she doesn't have a point of reference except how it gets into her. So I get some critique from her. And then I get critique from a couple of teachers at school who are experienced writers. And I'm very, very fortunate that I have people who do this for each other. That's the exchange. You know, it's funny. stuff, And we're honest with each other about but also we know how to deliver that news. And that's so important. And I hope in your writer's group, you're learning how to deliver the news. And that takes some maturity. I I train my students to be good colleagues, not just try to get their talent onto the page, but I also train them to be good colleagues and professionals. So there's a, there's a point where I go, well, thank you, uh, uh, Darian, but what you really meant to say was, I liked it, but <laughs> because starting a sentence like that is the difference between, let's say, uh, uh, um, a producer you feel like you could work with or a director or actor you can work with and somebody who really is never satisfied. People who always go, nah, do this. That. I try to stay away from that. Now, sometimes you can't. Sometimes they're paying you, and you have to sit and take it. So there's that, too. But I would say go where the lights are green so that you can keep moving. Don't go anywhere where people stop you because that is not what you want. I find it to be a little bit like a, if I say I liked it, but it sounds like I just took away that I liked it. I've kind of, <laughs> I've kind of been saying like, I liked it. And at the same time, or I liked it. And, and I think our group does that pretty well. If, if anything though, I think that, and I don't know how you feel, Ron, but uh, I feel like we've all like, we're all like through the, um, what do you call it, The honeymoon phase yeah, where we're all just like all over each other, you know, and we're, and, and part of that all over each other is that we don't, are no one's mean, you know, and yeah. everyone will say things that they would like improved. But I actually think we can go a little further into like uh, not harder criticism, but just being a little bit more direct. Because that when I finished um, my book proposal, when I was first pitching this story that I've worked on for mm, well, living it, it's been about 10 years. Yeah. I, uh, Ronald, I don't think you know this, but I'd already known Joe 
for a couple of years. I met him at his screenwriting course, mm. uh, the class that he teaches in Holland's University in Virginia, which I had audited. And and I was about three years in, and I remember Joe, we kind of stayed in contact, and I, I thought, I had this proposal, it was about 75 pages long, and it went through all mm. the aspects of a proposal, you know, marketing and, you know, um, parallel stories, you know, like stories, yeah. um, and the the sample chapters and an outline and it was like i put everything into it and i was like who and i learned by that time that if i gave this to certain people i would get a lot of like coddling you know and and niceness and i was like who's gonna be a dick like who doesn't care about me but also cares about me enough to not eviscerate me and i was like joe guilford and he does he does story uh, uh, story rescue. It's his business where you you like yes. give him your work, and then he you know really goes through with a fine tooth comb. Yeah. And uh, and he he did that exactly. It was like very direct. I think the one thing that he said that I'll I'll never forget this, Joe. I, and this is going to sound bad, but you knew me, and you you kind of you jokingly I'm, I'm said it. Afraid of what you're going to say. It's kind of it's kind of intense, but I, I want to. I think I can't he's. Be very tough. I can't be tough. I don't. I don't mind being tough. You said that it was the worst sentence that you'd ever. Oh yes, I, some of the writing was just so awkward. I had to tell you, no, it was bad. You know, there wasn't anything wrong with the story. This, we know this is a great story. You're still actually gonna you're gonna revive it. You're in the process of. I am. Yeah. No, it's going really well. And and wonderful life story. Part but of the yes, no, yeah. I had to date some of some of uh, some of Dan's writing. It's just lousy. <laughs> You have to say that. It's true. It's true. I mean, I had a guy, you know, who sent me a a script, and um, um, uh, he—it was a big adventure fantasy thing. It's like one of those, you know, it's one of like one of those books you find with a cover with a dragon and um, a kid on the cover with a big wand or something, you know. Anyway, one of those stories, and I have no objection to it as long as you make it into a decent story. But I kept it kept it's not going anywhere. I'm turning page after page. So I knew that he was part of the screenwriting program where you come in and you get coached on every 10 pages with the uh, uh, one-on-one person that mm-hmm. they offer at this little screenwriting school in New York, not part of NYU or anything like that. And I said, um, uh, what was his name? I can't remember his name. But I said, can, we, can I see a beat sheet? Can we, can we look at a beat sheet? What's a beat sheet? A, a, a beat sheet. Did I tell the story already? No, I don't know what a beat sheet is, though. You don't know what a beat sheet is? No oh, idea. My God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Gavalt, <laughs> There's my problem. <laughs> well, uh, you don't always have to use one. It is professional standard. A beat sheet is a prose outline of your story before you oh, write gotcha. in format. Now, the reason we do that is because in a formatted script, you can avoid, easily avoid writing the actual story. A beat sheet is a a plan. A beat sheet is a coherent story plan in which you talk, you, you write in prose. Ron wakes up and he sees a dead body laying next to him. He calls the police the next day or Ron gets a call from Richard Nixon. He says, yeah. what? Your father's dead. Oh, my God. What am I going to do? Next, the scene two. And you number it with scenes because you, you can't avoid telling the story in a beat sheet. Yeah. You have to tell the pure story. Now, not all writers use it. I guarantee you're going to spend the same amount of time. It's not a shortcut. But for me, it's a way to lay this thing out and to be able to shuffle stuff around. Some people use index card. That's fine, too. But there has to be a way for you to get a commanding outline 
of the story, a real itinerary, as it were, of your story, a calendar almost of your story so that everything is happening. And it's also a way to get criticism and feedback from people on the coherence of what you're doing before you go to the trouble of creating a script. So this guy I talked to said the same thing to me. What's a beat sheet? Now, I didn't know at this particular little film school that they didn't do beat sheets, which to me, I'm sorry, in, in it's part of our rubric in the classes I teach at, at all the universities. A beat sheet is required. It's required because we, I don't know how you do it without it. Some people can, but they end up doing 40 drafts instead of 20 because you're going to spend the same amount of time. It's Newtonian. You are going to spend the same amount of energy no matter what. A finished screenplay is a finished screenplay. It requires the same amount of energy for pretty much everybody, whether it's concentrated or if it's spread out over time, same amount of energy. I know that uh, the woman who wrote for Tim Burton, please forgive me, I can't remember her name. She claims to work only on 10 pages a day of formatted script. That day can be four hours long or 20. Hmm. But she has to generate 10 pages that she believes are first draft pages. Okay? So in that sense, she's probably outlining and beat sheeting in her head. For me, I sometimes come upon something which is a coherent scene with something that needs dialogue in format, and I write that out. But then the next scene is, well, something has to happen here that blah, blah, blah. Something has to happen here to change this guy's mind and send him off in this direction. And that I put in in prose. So I get into my own kind of clerical thing, and this is, again, learning how to work the controls. You know, you can drive a stick shift or an automatic. doesn't matter. Whatever you want. You can drive a truck or you can drive a Maserati. Just as long as you know how to drive it and how that thing is going to work in the end. Um, I believe in a very pure, very classical story structure handed down from Aristotle, from the great dramatists, and from the great screenwriters. And actually from the great picture makers, too. You know, they all, they all have to agree on something. And so the vehicle has to have four wheels, has to have an engine that runs, and it has to not break down, and it has to be able to be operated in a coherent and productive kind of way. So as I tell my students, you can bring me any idea you want. That's what I, I give them permission. I said, you can do anything you want in this class. You just have to make it work. And that's my promise. So the same goes to you. You can do anything you want work it any way you want but the story has to work it has to be meaningful it has to be thoughtful and you have to have a reason for having written the damn thing because screenplays stories drama novels all that they are a utilitarian product we use them to create our own consciousness through other people's consciousness hmm. by bringing our imagination to people we're altering the way they look at the world, we hope. Or something, we're causing some, you know, important kind of response. So it really, you have to sit down and write that story about your father. Because at that time, it caused something in you that you have to share with 
other people and that you really have to dramatize if only for your own kind of amusement. Yeah. Now, when you were telling me the story, and I'm glad you're recording this because I think your answer is a beat sheet. Hmm. I think your answer is a prose outline because as you pitched it, as you told it, every single word you said should be written down. If you make a transcription of what you told me, you can't go wrong. It's also a really good piece of short fiction, I think. Not a full-length novel. But that story is an excellent piece of short fiction. Interesting. I got a call from blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She's saying, yeah. this is my father's eighth wife. I didn't even know her last name. <laughs> Friend? My father didn't have any friends. Yeah. So I already can hear the stream of consciousness yeah. of your main character. Yeah. yeah. And I'm already hearing the humor in this thing, which is really, let's admit it, this is a funny story. Yeah. Because everybody got what they deserved. You should not have gotten involved with them. <laughs> you should have done that. Now, that is what a great yeah. story journey is. And I was telling this to Dan. He's saying, well, what about someone doing heroic stuff? And I said, don't bore me. Mm. Don't bore me with all the goodness in humanity. It's not yeah. entertaining. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not entertaining. I'm reading this great book now that the name i can never forget um the last halftime walk it's about veterans being brought home from iraq and going to a big party it is so funny and so mm. cruel mm. your story uh, iran is funny and cruel and those are the movies we love you yeah know? being john malkovich yeah. big fish the work of tim burton the work of the cohen brothers the yeah. work of uh steve soderbergh i just saw let them talk with Meryl Streep on, uh, I think it was Netflix. Yeah. About yeah. her as a, a celebrated author on an ocean liner. She's a guest and all that. And it's about what a, what a crappy famous person she turned out to be. Or the Congress. Have you seen the Congress? Yeah. No. What's that? Oh, it, it right in line with every movie you just said, it's Robin Wright. And she plays uh, herself. She plays Robin Wright. And it's one of those um, movies that goes into animation about halfway through. And long story short, it's her in in, an, in a universe where the, her career has is washed up and she made a bunch of terrible decisions. And they're asking her, they say, you, we're offering you one more contract, Robin Wright. And it's, we're going to scan your entire body and all your emotions. And now we own you and you never act again. And then it's, it's her taking or not taking that That's deal great. and all that. Mm, it's pretty intense and interesting, but I was going to say, Joe, you're mm. one of the most powerful pieces of advice you uh, I've ever been given about writing and on this journey and cutting the sign of my own path to getting this story finished and in the, and in the world was I kept boring myself. I became more and more acutely oh, aware yeah. that I was bored. And I thought that it was interesting. The 11th commandment. Well, the, the part, the problem is, is I didn't know I was bored for a long time because one part of me is like masturbating almost by, by writing this thing about myself, you know? And then, so everything becomes interesting and then time passes and you learn more about life and you learn more about story and you have some people read it and you realize, Oh, this is boring. This is interesting to me and me only. And then at a certain point you become not interested. And that was very powerful for me. And then the other day is I, this is kind of real time. 
you know, you gave me this piece of advice that you just referenced right there. And the only way I was able to take it is because I'm fictionalizing this now. It's not a memoir. And you basically said, you can't be so, you can't be so self-aware of how everything's going to work out. Cause the way I live my life is very different than how I would, I would write a story about my life that would be wel- uh, welcome and helpful to other people. And so I had to do that thing, that great thing that um, the wonderful writer, uh, Martin McDonough, uh, I'm sure he's someone, you know, well, cause he's, Brilliant. Only, only screen, only playwright to have four plays up at London Square since Shakespeare. First thing out of the gate, won an Oscar in uh, in screenwriting. Then he wrote he wrote in Bruges, and this is um, he describes how he wrote in Bruges. It was based on a trip he himself took to Bruges, Brussels, or sorry, Belgium. And he, one part of him was like, fuck this place. It's boring as hell. Who cares about all the medieval bullshit? And the other part was totally fascinated. And the fact that he could recognize both of those parts, parse them into two different characters and then put them in conflict and then put them in a situation in Belgium made for a fascinating story. And your advice to me made me realize, oh, and this is so powerful, I think, in people's lives. Let's parse different parts of our personality and our psyche and and our take on things into different people. And we'll recognize the conflicts between them in story. Let's put them in those conflicts in life. Let's work those conflicts out. That's right. You wake up every morning, hoping to avoid anxiety. We know this every day. <laughs> we wake, every day we wake up, we pray that it will be a good day and I will not be poor and I will not be unhappy. Yeah. That's not what a screenplay is. It's not what a good story <laughs> is. A good story is if you don't feel anxiety, you're going to ask for your money back. <laughs> every great story every yeah. great story is a study distress anxiety and misfortune every one of your characters misfortunes is your audience's good fortune mm. you just have to be you have to bedevil your character now in your story ron is still a really good coherent example your character is already bedeviled by something but he has a chance to exercise his integrity he has a chance to fulfill the promise to himself that he made about his father's death. And no, he doesn't. And that's the lesson. I already know you. I can see what the pitch is. So you you know how this thing ends, which is in the end, he's going to go, oh, my God, it's Chinatown. If in the end, he's going to go, why did I listen to these people? And then he doesn't get a duo. Yeah, that's that's the hardness of the lesson. But it's also the comedy of it, too. If you look at The Hangover, which is really a good movie, look at the first three minutes. They wake up. There's a baby in bed with them. There's a tiger in the room. They don't know where they were or how they got there. And then when they go down to, they have one thing. They have this uh, parking ticket, parking redemption thing. So they go down and they get the car. It's a Las Vegas police cruiser and a naked Chinaman jumps out of the trunk and runs away. (laughs) those are the first like eight minutes of the movie what are they going to do now that's your guy he gets a call not only sorry uh, your father is dead but you have nothing to do with the funeral we're running the show from here on in yeah therein is your conflict what is the journey to fighting that battle for your character that's what i would pitch back to you if we had a story conference 
which we just had. We just did. We just totally this is did. The biggest plug for StoryRescue.com I could possibly make. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we're, we're, you guys must have a great time in your group. We do. We do have a great time in our group, and it's given me a, uh, a kind of confidence I've not yeah. had around my writing uh, ever. Um, and not only that, it's given me the ability to peer into other writers' processes and their own pathologies. And and I'd say even in the short amount of time that we've been together, I've seen a a big uptick in all of our all of our ability to to be coherent mm. and to find more of our voice because we have, I think the power. You know, you mentioned um, uh, serenity earlier in the program, and you know you're referencing fill in the blank anonymous, like any, any kind of, the power is community. The power is having people around you see a truth about yourself that you're unwilling to see about, that you're unwilling to agree with until they have a, no, a number of people who all say the same thing. And then you, then you have to, you either continue to decide to be a lunatic and disagree with them, or you decide, okay, all these <laughs> people are saying something that I have a hard time believing, but because they're saying it, I'm going to risk my heart risk my myself and just decide that they're onto something i'm going to take their advice and run with it and and that was my that's been my process but i think it's been the process of everyone else and i'll even kind of you know pick on daniel a little bit like the change from what i first saw to what i recently saw is profound and so good it is so, so good. What he's making is incredible. I'm a very picky, very, very picky writer, well-read. And and I'm type, I'm like, I'm looking forward to this. And I I know in the future, I'm going to get to say I was there when, when he's, you know, giving talks yeah. at bookstores and things like That's that. That's beautiful, man. That's and, beautiful. I had a very good writer's group. When yeah. I started, and there's nothing, listen, getting your work in front of people. You can't exhibit your paintings underwater. You must show your work and get it out there. Now, yeah. a lot of my students, it's massive. you know, nobody really has access to the business. It's only a, chair, a, 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 a few that really have access to agents and managers and production and pitch meetings and all that. It's only a few people. And I think some of my students have sort of faced that. It has to do with location. It has to do with the world you find yourself in. It has to do when you made your choice to do this. But a lot of them are doing those contests, you know? It's all these screenwriting contests now, and I, yeah. and I recommend it because you get it in front of people and you get a taste of the arbitrary irrationality of what you will probably call your failure. And it's not that at all. Yeah. It is simply you putting it out there when 12 Russians tell you you're drunk, you better lie down, which is, which is when enough people say, you know, that doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't. Yeah. But, that's, when enough that's... People, but, but be sure to be open to the other side of it. When enough people say this works, listen to them and keep doing that as well yes. or understand how you yeah. got there. That's that's the most important thing you can do with your work is understand how you got there, not because I showed you the way, but because you showed yourself the way. Yeah, you know, I know, I know, I know we're uh, we're about coming up on it here, Ron. But last thing I'd like to at least add or say is that um, writing, and I think being an artist, and basically creating anything, living life, but. 
in writing and being artists, I've been shocked at how brave and courageous one needs to be. It's almost, it's like, what are you talking about? You need to be brave and courageous. You're sitting in front of a fucking computer. (laughs) It's like, nah, you need to be brave because you need to maybe cut things that you, you are, you're attached to. Maybe you need to start over and dive in with who you are now. You need to be brave in how you treat characters. Now we're getting more into how you, you would be being brave, but there's bravery all the way along through to the end. There's courage, there's confronting fear. And, and I've just been like, the only reason, Ron, that you, that, that I was able to grow in that first few, that first month, as much as seems to be happening. I mean, I didn't send it to Joe yet. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) let's pump the brakes a little bit on it being really good. (laughs) But, uh, but it was because I was pacing around my day, my house all day one day, hating what I'd been writing. I'm not like hating it in a negative way, but just frustrated. You know, I'm better than this. What yeah. is going on on this page? You know, and I was bored with it and I didn't know how to get out of it. And I, and I finally just was like, I took the advice of what I had been told for, I cut the sign of what I had been told over and over in my life, not just as a writer, but as a human. And it was have more fun. In this Mm -hmm. case, for me, it was have more fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew I had courage as a writer, but I was doing, there was a different piece, you know, and that was have more fun. And then it was really interesting, Joe, very fast, very interesting. I rewrote the thing that I had done in about six or seven places, cut a bunch of stuff out. And what I put in was just me diving into fiction writing, me diving into parts of my mind that I thought when I was first doing would be not valuable, would be goofy, would be this or that. I gave that chapter to several people, not only in the writing group, but a few people I also know. And across the board, everything I took out was great. People were grateful that it was gone. But then also their favorite parts were all just happened to be these parts that they didn't know you know, cause they hadn't read the same thing, but they just, it was just, it was an incredible experience and it was so validating. You can't, you can't, um, don't, don't, uh, um, underestimate time either. Uh, it has to do with writing something down and then walking away from it. And yes, coming back to it and going, that's not as good as I remember, or this is much better than I remember. You'll get yeah. a full range of that. Oh, you know, just when you're right, when you're alone, but also, uh, being an artist and being alone, that's why, uh, Fran Leibowitz in this wonderful series that Scorsese produced half-hour interviews with her called Pretend It's a City. Um, and she represents every cranky, overly educated New Yorker that you could possibly imagine, including yours truly. And the sense that the sense that um, um, we we are always sort of disturbed that we have to go do this again. And, she, you know, if you're loving it, I don't know. Love is reserved for a rock concert. Love is reserved for a meal. (laughs) Love is, maybe it's reserved for your partner, but we know that's not a 24-7 condition of marriage or relationship. It's part of it. It's just part of it. It's not the whole thing. It's the goal, but it's work too, and know what work is. Work is lifting. You know, you got to move sometimes from one home to the next, you know? I've been here for 15 years because I don't like moving, but it will be necessary. And it will be necessary for me to pack and get organized and make sure that when I arrive at the other end, it's going to be okay. And that 
the things that I've done to prepare for that are going to pay off, but it's not fun. It's just necessary. And my God, when you arrive, wow, I have this whole new place. And look, I labeled the boxes properly. I know where everything goes. Writing a screenplay for me is just that. There is a clerical chore involved, which you must adhere to. And then there is also the freedom of bringing your consciousness and imagination to something. And the T word, talent, which you got to have. And I don't know where you get it. But I do know if you do something enough, you will perceive yourself as talented, period. <laughs> yeah. But you guys must have a great time. I envy you because I'm not in the group right now. It's, it is it is very looking. good. I'm yeah. still looking. Joe, this is uh, an incredible gift. Always a pleasure, really. You guys are you're so fun. Spiritual healing, man. It's (laughs) like I feel healed inside and like ready to. No, seriously, this is uh, great stuff to do. And I really, I'm going to start listening to your. Where do I find this, by the way? Uh, You can just search Cutting for Sign podcast. Uh, You can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. What does that mean? cutting for some oh that's a good question it's an archaic phrase that means uh finding the clues the signals and the bent pieces of grass for the animal or person that you are tracking out in the open range it's an old hunter's term and tracker's term and it's a metaphor for us on finding our true self what is the small little pieces and clues that we have found, the small omens, you know, Paulo Coelho would say that, omen that uh, we have found seemingly out of um, nothing that is actually the universe telling us this is the way, this is where you need to go, this is your right next right step, or it's okay to make a bad step. Uh, stealing from you today so that's that's the name from that it's uh, i i grew up in the west um my dad was a a born probably 150 years too late and spent the better part of the last years of his life pretending to be a mountain man dressing up like uh pre-1830s uh fur traders and dragging me all over the west going to these things where we would shoot black powder rifles and throw tomahawks and knives and start fires with flint and steel and in this like weird vernacular began to seep into my subconscious and then i uh as an adult found uh the famous writer cormac mccarthy who lives in that vernacular and um and so as we, Daniel, I've been talking for 10 years, um, working together had always been a dream of both of ours. And over time, this kind of presented itself really clearly. And this phrase rose to the surface. It's terrific. And you just, by the way, that was your second act flashback. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. It was. I'm, telling you. I'm not asking you, Ron. Yeah. And I'm, not, I'm telling you. It's your second act flashback. I appreciate that. That's where my mind works now. It's a hey, bit much. Joe, if you uh if you uh look the podcast up, I think you'll enjoy the episode with Tom O'Leary. I think he comes out on Friday. Um okay. he's an actor yeah. from Ireland and and it's a pretty good episode. And I don't you might like other ones, but I, I that one comes to my mind. We'll send you the link uh, to yours as these come out as well. And you can share them with your, your kids and your students or anything like that. Awesome. And uh, man, you're the best. Thank you so much for this. I can't wait to keep in touch with you. (laughs) Okay. And today was a beautiful day in in our country. Remember it is January 20th, 2021. And my God, I just exhaled. 
We all collectively did. And with those masks on, it doesn't smell good right now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, you, man. Bless Take you. care of yourself. Have a great one. Okay, Thank bye-bye. Bye, sir. Awesome. To field dressing of cutting for sign today we had joe guilford part de what a what a treasure that guy is he that was uh an insane um encouragement to me as a writer as somebody who has denied a part of myself for a long time uh didn't feel qualified to put my ideas on paper and i gotta say over this last year i better part of a year over a year since i've dedicated myself to writing i've been surprised what has come up and this was completely unexpected i did not see this coming at all um to just have to have a number one just a conversation with somebody of his caliber number one like the in it that is just a gift but number two to have him encourage me to pick up something i thought was dead and uh and then show me why i should was was massively encouraging i've pitched i've i've pitched and seen him talk about pitched stories a lot like i took his class and um he doesn't bullshit when it comes to things that don't work and the fact that he so clearly picked out and noticed recognized that you had a story and that you should tell it and also he was like don't change a lot you know what i mean yeah yeah I was, I was encouraged for you, you know, it's interesting when life overlaps the work that we're doing here, you know, in in real time, I think it's the best. It is. My only problem now is a, is a champagne problem, you know, where you're like, Oh, the bubbles and the champagne. Yeah. It's like, what do I, what do I work on? And I'm in the middle of working on right now, but (laughs) you know, it's, it gives me a lot of material to work on for a lot of, a lot of years. And maybe I was just thinking, maybe I'll hit the print button and just, print that out and then a little a little you know at a time just start to write that beat sheet uh right next to the thing that exists yeah exactly and uh you know but that's i i I thought what i was thinking of as he was describing the writing process and this is what we were talking about during part one is if a character is what he does how do we want to live our life and what is the work we want to put into the elements that create the life that we want and create the story arc that we want. Cause if you, if you are just like bored with your own life, that's your fault, (laughs) but it's, but it like you were talking about as you were kind of interested in writing your character or your story and that feeling of like, it kind of felt like masturbation. I love that what you were saying there because we i think we all get into that where we're interested in ourselves and interested yeah. in this little myoptic world that we're in and and then after a while you've got to recognize like wait a second this isn't as thrilling as i thought and you've got to make some changes and i think that that carries both over to our writing world which is i've been there before man like bored yeah. to tears writing like just chunking things out and also life where you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I, why do I have this yeah. job? Why am I in this relationship? What's going on here? Is this okay? No, it's not okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's the world trying to get your attention. Yeah. And it's, it's a skill. It's a skill set to be able to recognize story. 
And you might say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I'm not a storyteller. So that might not matter to me, but stories are so, and obviously I don't need to beleaguer this point, but like stories are obviously very important to us as humans, you know, mythologically, uh, and then entertainment wise, and then all the areas in between that, um, are this, the things we believe about ourselves, the stories we tell about ourselves, which is what you were talking about. Um, the last time Joe, we had him on here. And I think that the ability to pick out and parse out elements of story and elements of a character, that skill turned back on oneself, turned onto the people around you. I I don't know if there's many skills that would be more valuable. It cuts, helps you cut the fat of your life, get clear and everything that you're supposed to do with a character, you're doing that 90 day um, novel writing course. And the first, uh, the first thing that you told me that the exercise was on the first day was something to the effect of what's your character believe in? What do they want? You know, where are they going? What would they, how would they react in this situation? I'm just like asking those questions of ourselves, coming up with good, honest answers or ever more honest answers, or even just having the, you know, we're all, a lot of people are busy and overwhelmed. Just having the question floating out there in the ether, you know, that's, that's valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that is one of those questions that is, or exercises of reflection that we sometimes think of in passing and rarely bring intentionality to. We rarely bring enough attention to what do I really want in my life? We think about yeah. it. Like it, it's, it's a thought in passing. Well, I'd really like a good relationship or a decent job, but it's not something that we put a lot of attention in as much as where we're going to plan out the arc. And and I think a lot of the reason we don't is because we've got hope beat out of us. You know, we we think we're going to try something yeah, and and it fails, and and maybe for all the wrong reasons. Like with me writing that screenplay in my twenties, I didn't actually deserve any of the pity that I was wallowing in. Right? <laughs> maybe. What well, what I mean is like maybe if I had like tried twenty times, or had like moved to L.A. and like you know, wrote this screenplay, gone through 20 drafts, gone to 20 mm. pitch meetings. Like I then, then maybe Absolutely. I deserved a little bit of self-pity, right? <laughs> then maybe I could say like, ah, this sucks. This is really hard. And now I'll go do it. But yeah. I didn't, you know, I wrote it. I wrote it like pretty quickly. I wrote it in my spare time. I gave it to one guy who said he wanted to see it, who had some success in Hollywood thinking that somehow magically it was going to, you know, be the best. Good Lord, Ronald, this is the best screenplay I've ever read. You know, that's the, that's the expectation I had in my mind. And when he didn't, I was like, oh, shit, I should never do this again. And not realizing, you know, to break the four minute mile took a tremendous amount of work to run a marathon at all takes a tremendous amount of work. Like, And not and exactly. And not only that, Ronald, but I think in the story of your own life, as I look at it and, and see it through the storytelling eyes that I have am developing yeah but like that screenplay that thing you put out there was 
was uh, indicative of, of per- perhaps, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but where you were in life and how well you knew yourself in life. And maybe you were, you were a one, a first draft of yourself or a second draft of yourself yeah. at that time. And your life was a product of that understanding, knowing and effort. And now, I mean, we're talking about a chunk of time. Is that 15 years, right? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, I mean, it's been like, you know, uh, all of K-, K through 12 has happened again, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, since then it's like, I've, yeah. I've got my diploma of adulthood since then yeah man and now it's on the table in some way again or yeah. at least writing and it's, it is yeah. on the table and you're producing and to to be coming i i would think that the product that you create based on the who that you are now would be something uh, immensely closer to being able to catch the attention of someone of the world and be produced into something or at least okay instead of draft one you know maybe even though this is the second draft you've done it's it's almost like this will be more like that draft would have been on like draft 10 of 20 you know or or 10 of 15 i don't know but you know what i mean yeah 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 well it's got my curiosity peaked and i'm gonna uh give the screenplay a read again but i think you know as somebody who has um I'm th- I'm thinking about who's listening to this and I'm thinking about what I want them to walk away from in this. And I mean, number one is like your g- effort is required. I'm realizing how much effort in the, in hindsight, of course, that I needed to put in, but I, I love the mercy that you're kind of lending to me by saying like that you were in your first draft and you're at that point in your life and you didn't know you needed another, another go at it. And the, and the, the reality of is in that sense too, is like, I had gone through a first draft. I had just gotten a divorce at that point and, and felt like it was um, a new start for me. Um, and it's interesting now how much that, that feeling was pushing my writing and how, and how like intertwined it was. It's almost like the, the, that feeling of the divorce and the experience of the divorce, like poisoned the story. And now that I've got all this time away from the divorce, like the divorce almost has nothing to do with that story anymore in my mind. And wow. it'd be really interesting to go back to it. But I, I'm, I, you know, I distracted myself just then, but I, I, I'm just thinking an interesting life, a life that feels good takes a lot of intent. And I'm living a life where I feel really good about my decisions. And it's taken a lot of discipline and effort and yeah. a lot of discomfort yeah. in a lot of ways, a lot of suffering in a lot of ways. And it took me a long time to realize that those three things, effort, discipline, suffering, are actually paths of freedom. And and um, those are the things you, those are the, the paths you want to walk down. <laughs> those are the, the elements, the tools you want to take with you down the dark path, I think. What's that scene in, um, I don't know which Lord of the Rings movie it is, but the one where the king is on the thing and Gandalf comes up and like sucks the Sauron or the, the, uh, the, the wizard has a spell on him and he like sucks it out of him. Do you know what scene I'm talking about? Is that, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the return of the king and, (laughs) uh, Wormwood, Wormwood? Worm tongue, yeah. wormwood worm is tongue. like yeah. is the guy who's like yes. speaking yes. the evil curses yeah. into his ear. Yeah, that is such yeah. a man, yeah. That's such a metaphor to our own life, isn't it? 
Well, I think about your script, uh, particularly, I use that little scene a lot in my own life. Mm. Um, but it was really clear when you said that the, the divorce was in that script and it's yeah. like time, you know, or maybe you now would reapproach that script as Gandalf would approach that King, you know, and you'd be like sucking the divorce out of it. Cause it's yeah. not part of the story, you know? Yeah. And then what happens, this thing that is literally worthless, you know, yeah. actually becomes the, powerful king you know and i think that in any way we can do that in our lives you know obviously is something we should do recognizing but just even just thinking that that we have other elements in ourselves and we can remove part of them at least parse them out a little bit and see our lives through more clear lenses it's the same thing with that script oh man that's so good dude thanks for bringing joe on that like that's that's such a cool thing to get to do and, <laughs> and this has turned such a great chapter for both of us in our lives and and created yeah really great special man yeah opportunity for both of us I, w- I want if we do another iteration of this I, we might we're probably below his league i guess now that i think about it but i, I had this idea i was like oh he's looking for a writing group i was like yes no we ours. should definitely i was thinking we should be bold and ask him <laughs> <laughs> anyways that's right. my pleasure that's right. man thank you for uh, leading this ship it's been a pleasure and honor and that was one of the highlights for me is uh talking yeah. to joe Yeah, yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. All right, man. Till next time. Take care.